Hello and welcome to Stow Talks, a podcast designed to support people going through a relationship breakdown and all the challenges this brings. I'm Matthew Taylor. And I'm Lisa Gatchell, family lawyers at Stowe Family Law. And today we are going to be discussing representing yourself at the family court. So, and I'm not entirely sure where I got this figure from, but I was reading something um, last week where it said that approximately 18,000 people a month represent themselves at the family court. So wow. if this is something that you're looking at, you are certainly not alone. And what we wanted to do today is really try and give you some hints and tips and guidance on how if you are in that situation, it may well be because you can't afford to instruct a solicitor, which is probably one of the most common reasons that people would be in that situation, um, that you can hopefully find some ways to, to manage that process as well as possible. So do you want to kick us off then, Matt, with some of your some of your tips? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the starting point, and this is a bit of a caveat um, as much as anything, and the slightly obvious answer that you would expect a family <laughs> lawyer to say is take advice from a family lawyer. So that probably feels trite, and then people listen to, to this who just can't afford it, and that's completely understandable. Um, but you should be aware that just because you consult a family lawyer doesn't mean that they have to do everything for you. There are loads of clients who we work with who will come to us from for advice here and then. We might represent them in, fam- in financial proceedings, but not in children proceedings, which they're doing themselves. There are all sorts of ways of working with a family lawyer. And I think at the minimum, if you can afford it, getting at least an initial com- consultation so you can get someone to give you the overview of your case, um, run through the, the, the steps involved and talk about the process with you can be really invaluable. There are um, places that will give out free consultations as well if money is absolutely impossible for you. Obviously, there is some entitlement to legal aid, particularly in children proceedings, but the rules for that are pretty restrictive. So let's just put make that caveat first of if you can get advice from a lawyer, you should. Um, but clearly, there's a lot of people who can't or it will only go so far. So um, what do we, you know, what's the, I think the, the first thing to look at is your mental approach to proceedings uh, and your knowledge. And those are two slightly different things. So in terms of knowledge and practicalities, know the process. Um, there are lots of resources out there online. Check out the Stowe Family Law website. There are a breakdown about the procedure, whether it's the divorce procedure itself, whether it's finances, whether it's children. What happens when? What is your first appointment? What happens at that first court hearing? Very rarely in family proceedings, will the first hearing determine matters? You normally have a directions hearing or similar. So if you have to know what is going to happen at a hearing, because if you're going along expecting the judge to make a determination at a first hearing in a 20-minute hearing, you're probably going to be disappointed. What would you say about process, Lisa? What's the sort of top tips in terms of finding out and getting familiar with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things to to recognise as well is that whilst, you know, if you're choosing to go down this route and to represent yourself at the family court, the judge isn't going to give you any leeway necessarily um, because you haven't got a solicitor there. They're still going to expect you to know what all of the processes are, um, you know, behaviour wise and, you know, all the rest of it. So you really do need to do your homework, you know, significantly more than if you're instructing a lawyer. When you're in court, I think it's just really important that you are polite to the judge and to the other party or their solicitor. Make sure that you're listening, active listening to what's going on. Don't interrupt. Um, That's not going to go down too kindly with the judge. And I mean, my bit of advice as far as the process and and attending the hearing is concerned is very much once, once you know what's likely to happen at that hearing, try and write down what you want to say so that you can, first of all, 
if you get really nervous or you get tongue-tied, you can just read it out and know that you've said your piece. Um, and if not, you can check through it because it, it can it's going to be fairly stressful to be in that hearing environment. And it's really, really easy to forget something or come out afterwards and think, oh, I wish I'd said that. So make sure that you sit down and, and write it out as if you're talking to the judge what you want to say. I think that's great advice. And I think being succinct with that is really important. You know, the judge, what the judge won't want to do is hear you rehearse all the things that you're unhappy about from the relationship. Um, you know, your, your ex may have had an affair that may have treated, you know, behaved pretty badly. In certain circumstances, bad behavior can come up in, in court if, if we're talking about financial proceedings, but it's incredibly rare. In terms of finances, what the court is looking at is how can we best dissolve this, you know, uh, separate the financial ties between these parties and deal with the assets involved. And that's what the focus has got to be in children proceedings. The court doesn't like to see mum and dad tearing strips off each other. It's about looking at what's in the children's best interest through their eyes and being really child focused. So I think when you are writing that out, you've got to think to yourself, does this get to the point that the court wants to see here? Does it help the court determine the finances? Does it help the court understand why what I am asking for in respect to my children is best for the children rather than for you, rather than for your, your, your ex-partner? So I think being clear about that and being focused is, is really important. And, you know, being, being respectful, uh, being polite, um, trying to keep the emotions out of it. I think one of the great advantages of having a lawyer is that we will be dispassionate. Now we're empathetic we work with our clients, but in front of a judge, you know, we're going to try and be quite focused and quite dispassionate because we know that the way that the law is applied. Uh, and it might feel quite difficult to do that because it is an incredibly emotionally stressful process. But I think if you can take that emotion out of it and be quite factual, then that's just clearer for the judge to understand what you're after. You're not confusing the judge and therefore you're more likely to get something in line with what you're seeking. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Another one would be, and this, this might sound really obvious, but you need, if you've got a hearing listed, you need to attend all of the hearings. Um, and I think some people fail to understand that if you don't attend a hearing, there is a very real possibility that the judge could make an order in your absence. So make sure you attend all those hearings. If for any reason you cannot attend a hearing, you need to be speaking to the court um, and asking for that hearing date to be changed. But, you know attending is probably the, the the best thing in those circumstances <laughs> yeah that's that's a real kind of minimum minimum requirement is to be there and if you can't be there then expect to provide evidence if you're saying that you're unwell provide medical evidence if you're saying you have to work provide evidence from your employer um and if you need to rearrange a hearing the best way to do it is to cooperate with your ex-partner or their lawyers to do so and this brings on to what i think is a really key point it's understanding what the family court is trying to do with its, its proceedings. Very, very few hearings, cases, go to a final trial where a judge makes a determination. Very, very few. The whole structure of the family court is designed to encourage settlement. This is finances and children. So is a degree of compromise required? That leads into, a if not a requirement, certainly an expectation that it's more helpful if actually you can work together with the other party. And that might feel like a crazy thing to say, but the best cases and the most effective cases are the ones where lawyers are involved, when you can work with the lawyer on the other side. Um, and I'm not necessarily going to agree with all their points, 
and they won't agree with all mine. And we might be poles apart on what we think the resolutions of the case is, but I can respect that they have a right to put forward their case and they respect that I have a right to put forward mine. And actually, if we work together and we're sensible, we can do that in the best way. So therefore, if I need to request an adjournment for a hearing because my client's unavailable, then I can go to them and ask them to consent to that. And if they're sensible, they'll advise the client that it's reasonable. So that's a couple of examples of where working with the other party or the other party's lawyer and not treating them as the enemy at every stage and have to win every little battle can be something that really helps you in the in the long term. And, you know, so we do cases against litigants in person. The ones that I've the ones that are painful as a lawyer are the ones where you have to argue every single point all the time because there's an assumption from the other side that it should be a fight. And the litigants in person where the case has worked well is where there's an acceptance that we're, we're going through a process. There is a way through that process. You can still make the arguments about what you want, and that's fine, but you can't stop someone else making their arguments as well. So I think not treating it as this huge fight and being prepared to compromise and work together so that you can settle and you can get out of this process is something that often doesn't probably doesn't occur to people. Mm. It's that whole expectations, isn't it? I think you're right. With court proceedings, people expect that but potentially we're going to have to sort out the minutiae of everything. But actually a judge will often come at it with a broad brush approach and yeah. kind of just look at the overall picture. And you have to be prepared for that if you're going to be doing that yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's a really good point is, is, you know, it's not necessarily going to go into line by line analysis of someone's bank statements or what happened when someone dropped the, picked up the kids, dropped off the kids half an hour late three months ago. The court's going to be more kind of holistic than that and look at a general approach that works for everyone that isn't going to get bogged down in minutiae because the court doesn't have time to deal with that on every single case. And the best way to annoy a judge is to deal with those comparatively minor issues. And not that, you know, they're going to be huge issues to the parties themselves, but from the court's perspective, something that isn't going to assist the resolution of the case is going to get bogged down, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think another thing to help is that when you're instructing a solicitor, we obviously keep a file of all of the documents so that if we need to go back and we need to pull something else, it's, it's really easy for us to do that. And if you've got a court case that's going on for a number of months, you may well have to refer back to a document that was lodged some time before. So keep a file, whether that's a a file in, you know, an, an electronic file in your emails that's specifically related to the court proceedings or whether you print everything off and you have it in a lever arch file, um, you know, with dividers and all the rest of it. So it's nice and organized. But I think keeping a copy of all of those documents will really help you. And that's letters to and from your ex-partner as well or their solicitor try and keep it all together in one place. Yeah, absolutely. What's your top tips for dealing with sort of correspondence? If you're talking about letters from solicitors and let's say that you're self-represented and your, your ex-partner has got a lawyer, Lisa, what's your, your tips for someone that's listening in person, you know, corresponding with a lawyer and how to go about doing that? So my first top tip would be to write out what you want to say in response and then park it and put it to one side, and whether that's for a couple of hours or until the next day, go back again and then relook at it and think, is this actually helping? Is it constructive? Is it is it what I should be putting as a response? Because sometimes I think when you get correspondence within these types of proceedings, when you first read it, it can automatically have an emotive response. Um, and if you fire off an angry letter back to your the other party or, or their solicitor, all you're going to do is ramp up the heat, if you like. 
um, and cause more problems. So it's it's very much trying to look at it from a constructive perspective. And if you and often when you've put it to one side and you go back to it when the the emotions have you know gone down a little bit, you'll look at it again and think, well, and it's quite cathartic sometimes just to put it on paper. And you can then go back. You can you might delete some bits and resend it, and it will be a much more constructive response. Yeah, that, I think I think that's really useful. I think that's something that. You know, something that I do from time to time actually um, is 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 sometimes stashing stuff off in the heat, either in the heat of the moment because you're exercised about something that's coming from the other side, or I'm just busy. I've got a million things on, and I'll dash something off. And sometimes I just think, I just leave that and come back to it. And you come back. Do you know what? Written communication can be so easily the meaning doesn't always come across mm-hmm. perfect. And what can be me meaning to be oh yes okay fine can look snippy or can look patronising, um, and. And that's and if you're a litigant in person, you're probably incredibly busy. You're probably working. You probably got you know you may well got kids to look after as well. And then you're coming home in the evening and you're stressed because you're dealing with all the breakdown in relationship. And then you've got to deal with you know correspondence with solicitors. It's probably not going to be your finest work to do that at a rush at the first minute. So I think taking that time and cooling off is probably a really good, helpful piece of advice. So when you're in a hearing, the first thing you need to know is who's the hearing in front of. And we have all sorts of different judges and levels of judges in courts in England and Wales. So here's a quick um, guide to the judges that you might be in front of and what to call them. Because actually one of the most stressful things, and I include this as myself when I was a trainee solicitor, when I was qualified, is knowing what to call a judge without you know embarrassing yourself or, or even worse, offending them. So let's start with um, in children proceedings, your first hearing is often before the magistrates. Now, the magistrates are three lay people. They are normal people. They are not qualified judges. They're doing this as volunteers, and it would be a bench of three people. They will be assisted by a legal advisor who is legally qualified to advise them. Now, sometimes these first hearings can just be in front of a legal advisor, but assuming that there is a a bench before, before you, there will normally be three people, and the lead magistrate will sit in the middle, usually, and the other two are called their wingers. Uh, which I think is great, it's like having a wingman. Um, um, and your form of address for the magistrates is sir or ma'am or your worships collectively. Now, your next rung up in terms of seniority of judge is uh, our deputy district judges and district judges, DDJs and DJs, not spinning decks, but DJs, district judge. That can be for both children and financial hearings. The form of address for a deputy district judge or district judge is sir or ma'am. Um, the only difference between the two is a deputy district judge is a part-time judge. They will sit as a judge, but they will also be a solicitor or a barrister normally or an academic, someone who has a legal profession outside of that. They're the majority of judges that most people deal with. If you are moving further up the food chain, the hierarchy as it, it were, and your case becomes more complicated or as an appeal, you may be before a circuit judge, which would be um, HHJ, so his or her honour judge, so and so. So the, that would be the next, the next run up, um, and then you're also dealing with recorders at that stage. So they are the next stage up, and then you're moving to high court judges uh, and, and so on. That's the hierarchy of judges that you're dealing with. So knowing who you're in front of can be really helpful. Then you've got what actually happens at these hearings. So you've got your first hearing. And let's say, for example, you've got a finances first hearing um, and you're before a district judge. 
Um, Lisa, what would you be preparing? What would you be expecting to happen at this hearing? Before this hearing, when you, your application had been issued, you would have been given a list of directions that you needed to comply with. So a list of things that you needed to do. And this would have been things like completing your financial statement, putting together a chronology, a questionnaire, etc. So you'll have had all of that. And the idea is that all of that will have been done before you get to the first hearing. And the judge at the first hearing is checking, firstly, has everybody filed everything or given all of the documentation that they should have done to the court and each other? And secondly, are there any questions that need to be answered on any of that documentation? And then thirdly, are there any experts that we need to instruct? So that might be a pension actuary or a property valuation. So no decisions are going to be made at this first hearing unless you come to court and you agree outside and ask the, ju the judge to, to make that into an order. But ordinarily at this hearing, it's very much, has everybody done what they should do? What do we need to be able to move the case onwards? So it's largely an admin hearing, isn't it? It's housekeeping. It's not a case at which you would be rocking up saying, I want 50% of this, 75% of that, because the court at that stage generally isn't able to determine things. It needs to gather the information. So it's quite administrative base. I don't know about you, Lisa, but when I'm there with clients, I think quite a lot of people find the first appointment quite underwhelming. It yeah. feels a bit like, oh, was that it? We yeah. didn't talk about my case. We didn't talk about the issues. I think particularly because they've waited so long to get to that point. Um, so, you know, by the time that you've got there, that they really want to see some progress. But unfortunately, that's not the hearing that 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 progress on the main issues happens. Yeah. And the, there's the children equivalent of that, which is the first hearing dispute resolution appointment, mm -hmm. the snappily titled FEDRA, <laughs> FHDRA. Uh, we love some um, impenetrable acronyms in family law. Um, and that is a similar process. It is what information does the court need to determine the uh, determine the dispute? Does there need to be a report from Kafkas? Does there need to be statements filed from the parties? Do there need to be medical evidence? Does there need to be a report from a school? What information needs to be gathered? So again, it's very, very rare that the court will make a final order at a first hearing unless things are unless there are no welfare issues and, and really no further evidence is needed. So again, you're looking at directions hearing and then the court will say, well, off you go and come back for the next hearing. And I suppose we can talk about both these together because while this pattern can change in different proceedings, and you can have extra hearings or fewer hearings, generally in both children and finances, you're looking at a core three hearing process. Mm -hmm. So after that, with finances, you move on to an FDR. And in their children, you move on to DRA. I warned you about the acronym. So you've got a financial <laughs> dispute resolution hearing in finances or a dispute resolution appointment in children. So what's the approach for those hearings then, Lisa? So with the FDR in financial proceedings, I tend to refer to this as almost in-court mediation with the assistance of a judge. Yeah. So at this hearing or prior to this hearing, everything's now going, we're going to have got all the valuations, we're going to have had all the expert reports, all of the questions will hopefully have been answered. So we've got all of the information we need. And the question now is, what are both parties' positions? And prior to this hearing, you will have had to have written down what your position is and made a proposal as to how you think um, the case should settle, you know, what the financial settlement should be in your circumstances. And the judge at the FDR hearing is there to listen to both of your proposals. You're obviously going to have very different proposals because if you'd agreed it, you wouldn't be at an FDR hearing. And the judge is then going to give an indication as to if this were a final hearing today, perhaps what their view is on the issues that are in dispute. And the idea is that it will help you to bridge the gap and reach an agreement. And I don't know about you, Matt, but I do find that probably 90% of my financial cases will settle at or before that hearing. 
Yeah, generally, because you get an indication and that indication can range between, well, you know, in an ideal world, you're right, they're wrong. That's the right answer. That happens less frequently than anyone would like. It's more commonly, it's a negotiation, it's a settlement. You're both going to have to compromise. I'm now going to um, rock out one of the cliches that I use with almost all my clients, which is the final resolution is going to be something you don't love but can live with because you're both going to compromise to get, reach a settlement. that sort of works for both of you. So quite often the judge will say, well, you're both in the bracket, but it's more towards the center of that bracket. Or they might give a specific figure or a specific percentage. And then you have to go away and, and settle on that basis, like, like you said, Lisa. Um, and yeah, upwards of nine out of 10. And then if it doesn't settle, it's important to remember at the FDR, the court cannot make a final order. They cannot say this is the answer, you're done. What it would have to do instead is list a final hearing, which would go in front of another judge where you have the same or similar or different arguments, depending on how the case goes. And that judge will make a determination, which 95 times out of 100 is going to be what you were advised to settle at, at the FDR, which is why, and you'll have paid a lot more. Well, if you're a listening person, not so much, but if you are taking further legal advice, you'll be paying a lot more, but you're certainly taking a lot more time to get to that similar resolution. Um, and I think that's, you know, that that's probably a, a fair summary, isn't it? The most final orders are roughly what was indicated at the FDR. Yeah. Yeah. And the children's proceedings then work fairly similarly, don't they? So we've got the dispute resolution appointment. Again, if we've got CAFCAS reports, um, medical evidence, etc., that will have all have been provided. The idea is that you've then seen the recommendations and hopefully the parties will be able to reach an agreement, perhaps with a little bit of nudging from the judge. Um, if you can't reach an agreement, it goes off to a final hearing again where a decision will be made. So really, in both sets of proceedings, the key thing to remember is for each, there is one key question for each of the, the, the three hearings. At your first hearing, what information does the court need to determine this matter? That's the fundamental question for the hearing. At the second hearing, can the party settle this matter by agreement? And at the third hearing, what is the answer that the judge is going to impose? So if you're a litigant in person and you're approaching these hearings, those are the key questions that you really have to bear in mind because anything that doesn't go to answering those questions isn't appropriate for that hearing, I don't think. I thought perhaps it'd be helpful, Lisa, if we can leave everyone with our final top tip for representing yourself in the family court. So what is your advice, your number one top tip for anyone who's got to go to the family court system themselves without representation? Yeah, so if you're attending a hearing and representing yourself, I think it would be that point of preparing what you want to say before you go in. And that's not saying put together a 10 page statement that you're going to because the judge isn't going to read it at the hearing, but an A4 page bullet points of points that you want to get across um, address it to the judge so that if you um, stumble or have a moment where your mind goes completely blank, you can simply read it out but very much thinking before the hearing what you need to say and trying to get it as succinctly as possible. Yeah, and I think my top tip is um, about mindset and about approach and it's leave your emotions at the court door. And that's an incredibly easy thing for me to say and a difficult thing for people to do. But the judge doesn't want to get involved in the emotions it wants to look forward. It wants to look at how do we resolve the finance of the marriage? How do we come up what's best for the children? Now, to anyone going through court, these are incredibly emotive things. But if you can take the emotion out of it and be pragmatic and be sensible 
and be rooted in reality and not try and rehash grievances from the relationship for all that that might still be a huge factor to you and still be incredibly raw in a lot of circumstances. That's going to help you get your point across in a language that the judge wants to hear, which is going to be far more persuasive uh, and result in you getting a far better result. Uh, the final thing I'd add um, just before we sign off is that in terms of resources, worth bearing in mind there are a couple of really excellent books for litigants in person that i'd recommend so the first one is called the family court without a lawyer it's by lucy reed um lucy reed is a barrister who works in children proceedings uh, based in the southwest she's also deputy district judge so she you know sees it from both sides of the courtroom um and she um has written a guide to for litigants in person uh which i think is really helpful there's also a book called The Family Lawyer's Guide to Divorce and Separation, which is by a solicitor called Laura Nasser, um, who's a partner at a, a firm in the Southeast, who's written a really useful guide to help people go through, navigate the um, family court system, and also deal with things that aren't going through the family court, but negotiations outside the court. So I think they're two really valuable resources. Obviously, Stowe Family Law, our website is chock full of resources, so do have a look at things there. Um, but to anyone going through the family court on their own, you know, just wish you the best of luck. Um, and I hope that you're able to deal with things in, in the best possible way. And I hope that these tips have helped a little bit. Yeah, definitely. So that's it for this episode of Stow Talks. Thank you for listening. If you'd like any more information on our podcast, head over to stowtalks.co.uk and please rate, like, share and review where you can. 